This is VLX number 145, The Ten Virgins. We are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina. This is your patristic, patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace in nomine Patris et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Even in paramedic school, we were taught that while working on someone who's dying, you should still try to remember the very last words that they say because it would be some of the most important things that they said. And as I said in the last VLX, this is true for our Lord also, that we are now in the last few days of his life before his passion, death, and resurrection. And so we should pay special attention to what he says. And so what's the most important thing to Jesus dying? First, his Father's glory. And secondly, the salvation of souls. So today we have this parable of the ten virgins, which honestly I've always found pretty boring, but this is what's so beautiful about the church fathers is they bring alive what Jesus said because these, these fathers were friends with the apostles who knew Jesus and died for him. And so what we're going to see today is, again, this parable refers to our souls and our preparation to either be in a state of rejecting God forever or to be in a state of the beatific vision in all of eternity. And so Jesus gives us the chance to prepare like the five wise virgins. And, you know, usually we try not to just foist or project, I don't know how we put this, our own ideas of Judaism on first century Judaism. I've become very allergic to all the Catholics listening to people like N.T. Wright, because they claim they know what first century Judaism looked like, but really it's just Protestantism foisted on the first century. And I don't just mean the divide between, say, faith and good works or, or issues of the sacraments. I mean, just even the attitude of Protestantism is foisted by a lot of neocon non-Catholics on the first century because so many of them are reading N.T. Wright. But as I said before, the water is coolest and clearest next to the source. We look to the fathers. Well, today is one of the few days Father Lapide actually does look at what first century Jews meant and said and would have believed 
and how they went to, for example, weddings. So I'm very willing to listen to it when we have a patristic source like Father Lapide. Well, he was 17th century, but he's looking at what the fathers say. I always look at all these Catholics quoting people like N.T. Wright, who claim that they knew what happened in the first few hundred years after Jesus' death or even leading up to him, but they're not quoting any of the fathers. So I just don't believe it. But today I believe this. So listen to what um, Father Lapide says about weddings for Jews in the first century. He says, Note that formerly, as now distinguished, well-dressed youths were assigned to the bridegroom to do him honor and virgins to the bride. And these last were often ten in number. Moreover, they were accustomed to celebrate weddings at night. That's really key to today's parable. Weddings happened at night for the Jews. Then the bridegroom came about evening to the house of the bride. There he was honorably and joyfully received in the house of the parents of the bride. From thence he conducted his bride to his own house, or if it proved too small, to the larger mansion of the nuptial feast. And there he celebrated and consummated the wedding. Of course, with nobody around for the second half. Both the youths and the maids of honor, carrying wedding torches, most frequently made of white thorn and five in number, went out to meet the bride and the bridegroom to do them honor. So this is an example of me really trusting what the fathers knew about first century weddings in Israel at the time. Weddings happened at night. The parents of the bride then welcomed the groom into their house. They had their wedding. And then that night they would consummate the wedding. But at the part of the actual wedding service, they had youths and maids of honor carrying wedding torches, most frequently made of white thorn. And these were five in number. They went out to meet the bride and the bridegroom to do them honor. And then um, Father Lapide says, this is why there is constant mention in scripture of lamps and lanterns, never of candles. We're actually going to see he means, he actually means torches. We're going to get to that in a second. Father Lapide says, as to the particular explanation and application of the parable, the bridegroom is Christ, the bride is the church, whose espousals take place in this life, but the eternal marriage shall be in the future glory of the resurrection. That's really key to today's parable. Let me say that again. As to the particular explanation and application of the parable, the bridegroom is Christ, the bride is the church, whose espousals take place in this life, but the eternal marriage shall be in the future glory of the resurrection. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 25, and verse 1 reads, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Okay, now why ten? Father Lapidus says they are ten in number because ten is the symbol of a multitude and totality. Ten equals multitude and totality. Another thing I'm very allergic to in scripture scholarship today is when modernists claim they knew a word that the early translators did not know. For example, you'll meet a lot of people that say St. Joseph was not a carpenter. He was a stonemason. Uh, who'd be behind that lie? <laughs> and so how did all these people, all the apostles, all the fathers, all the saints who had private revelations, how did they get that wrong? They didn't get it wrong. They were right in knowing that St. Joseph was a carpenter. So it doesn't really matter to me if Catholics are listening to Protestants who say, well, they parsed out the word tecton and they think that means this, this man worked stones or something like that. Maybe St. Joseph did use some stones, but I don't think 2,000 years of saints and the magisterium and all these private revelations got it wrong that St. Joseph was a carpenter. So I'm always allergic to people who think they figured out some word in Greek that no other Catholic has until Protestants came around. 
However, today is another one of those kind of exceptions because it turns out, and again, I'm getting my authority on Father Lapide, who's getting it on the fathers, that what was actually carried to these weddings was torches, not just candles or lamps. And this is why Father Lapide actually looks at the Hebrew here. He says, moreover in scripture, lapidim, lamps, mean torches. In weddings at night, these torches are carried before a bridegroom and bride because they will stand against breezes and winds, whereas lamps would be immediately extinguished. So what we're talking about is these virgins carrying torches. I think this is really important. You can picture in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, when they come to arrest Christ, uh, the, the soldiers all have these um, torches that are clearly lit by oil and are not going to go out with the wind blowing at them. Okay, and then we have verse 2, which reads, Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So again, we have ten. That is the number of multitude in totality. But these ten virgins are carrying ten torches. We're going to see that five of these torches fail and five keep alive for the particular judgment or more likely the general judgment. And so why were these five foolish? Why were five of the ten foolish? Father Lapidus says, Foolish because they acted foolishly and imprudently. For when they went out to meet the bridegroom with burning lamps or torches, they neglected to take the oil necessary for keeping the lamps alight. Again, there's a lot of Catholics today who are taking their cue from Protestants, what is meant by this, but we're going to see the fathers had a definitive description of what the torch was, what the vessel containing the oil was, and what the actual flame was. Verse 3, But the five foolish, having taken their lighted lamps, did not take oil with them. Verse 4, But the wise took oil in their vessels with lamps. Father Lapide gives a couple options for who these virgins are, but ultimately he lands on this. The virgins are all believers. The prudent are those who have faith together with works of mercy, charity, and other virtues, but the foolish are those who have faith alone without good works. Did you notice that? The foolish virgins are those who have faith alone without good works. Then it quotes the Syriac. The Syriac says they have been extinguished. Sometimes Father Lapide looks at how the Greek was translated from another ancient Near East language source. And by that, not that that trumps the Greek or the Latin, but it gives us some idea how the Aramaic meant to transmit the real meaning of what's happening here. They've been extinguished. Now keep in mind that in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 19, verse 8, we know that the wedding garments are the good deeds of the saints. You can go check that out. So this isn't just, um, I don't know, Catholics making something up as if we have to prove anything to anybody since we have all the apostles and the fathers and the magisterium. But it does show that the Protestants are totally wrong saying that good works don't matter. Again, Apocalypse 19.8, the wedding garments at the wedding feast of the Lamb to his church with all these saints at it, the wedding garments is the good deeds of the saints. And keep in mind, it's the inerrant word of Scripture that faith without works is dead. That's James 2.26. Father Lapide says, The lamp, therefore, is the believing mind or faith itself, as St. Jerome maintained. The oil is good works, without which faith is dead, and as it were extinguished, but with them alive and burning. The light or flame of the lamps is charity, for this is fed by zeal for good works, just as the flame of a lamp is fed with oil. The vessel is conscience or the believing soul. So notice right there, torch is the faith, the torch is the faith, the vessel is conscience, and the flame is charity. Father Lapidus says, and this is the reason why we place a lighted candle in the hands of dying persons, signifying or at least praying that they may have faith with works 
that like brides with burning lamps, they may worthily meet Christ the Lord, as it were, their bridegroom. So right there we have the liturgy. This is why dying people would hold a candle, or if they couldn't, the people next to them would always have candles. Now there's a thousand excuses. Oh, the, the oxygen tanks are going to explode, all this stuff. But really, this was another one of those things that was extinguished at Vatican II. So we see traditionally in the church that the Bible is lived out in the liturgy. Why in the world did people say, oh, well, it's more simple to return to really having nothing physical? Because that's how the early church did it. No, it's not. That's not how the early church did it. That's how Protestants do it. And this is why tradition always gels with the inerrant word of Scripture. But notice again that the torch equals faith, the vessel equals conscience, and flame equals charity. If that's too much to remember, just remember the torch is faith, but the flame on top of that torch is charity. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So, of course, Christ is not objectively late, but many people are going to think, according to their own designs and their own expectation of the general judgment, that he was, quote-unquote, late. Father Lapidus says, The delay of Christ the bridegroom is the opportunity for repentance and good works, which he grants to everyone in this life. Therefore, does he delay death and the day of judgment? To slumber is to die, to sleep is to be dead. So notice again there, the delay of Christ the bridegroom is the opportunity for repentance and good works. His delay isn't just something for us to be mad at, like, why do I have to go on living here? Life is hard. I wish Jesus would just return. I do tend to pray that a lot. But we have to see his delay is actually for more people to be saved. Verse 6 says, And at midnight there was a cry made. And then the Aramaic or the Arabic is, It was midnight and a voice cried out. It was midnight and a voice cried out. Father Lapide says, this cry denotes the archangel's trumpet, which awakens the dead from their graves. So notice, this is directly linked to what we know will happen at the end of the world. That the last day on earth here, we will hear trumpets blasting. That is the archangel's trumpet. And this is directly linked to the fact that at midnight, there was a cry made. And again, this isn't just Father Lapide. He, he gets that the archangel's trumpet, directly from St. John Chrysostom and St. Jerome, two doctors of the church. Now, even though I just got done saying that the fathers are definitive, I've also admitted on numerous past podcasts that there is some difference on less important issues. And one of these less important issues that we see the fathers debate on is, will Jesus return to earth in the second coming during the day or the night? Will Christ return in day or night? And so Father Lapide says, from the fact that it says here, this cry is made at midnight, St. John Chrysostom and St. Jerome think it is probable that the second coming of Christ to judge will take place at midnight and come upon men sleeping and unaware. And so he admonished us in the preceding chapter to be watching always. St. Jerome says that this was an apostolic tradition, and this was the reason why formerly at Easter, the people were not allowed to depart out of the church before midnight because, as in the olden time, Christ came into Egypt at midnight to destroy the firstborn and deliver the Hebrews. See Exodus 11, Wisdom 18. So it was believed that Christ would come at the same time to judge all men. But, says Father Lapide, this is a doubtful manner. Then we hear where Father Lapide takes the side of He says, For others with equal or even greater probability think that Christ will come to judge in the morning. For he is the Father of light, and he will execute his judgment openly in the light before the whole world so that there shall be no place of darkness for deceit, illusion, flight, or hiding. I think the obvious way to reconcile these two, and I'm the last person in the world to find 
reconciliation with two opposite views that are truly opposite. But in this case, it seems obvious to me that sometime like three or four in the morning would fulfill both of these expectations. It's still kind of midnight, still obviously very dark, but at the dawning of the natural day, it also might be the dawning of the supernatural day, the eternal day with Christ our Lord. And then verse seven, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. St. Augustine says, they began to trim their lamps means nothing else but to prepare to render an account of their works to God. St. Hilary says, the taking up of the lamps is the return of the soul to the body. The light is a bright conscience of good works, which is, as it were, contained in the vessel of the body. Once again, we see works for the fathers, the earliest Christians, tied to faith. Faith without works is dead. Verse 8, and the foolish, in Arabic or Aramaic, is stupid. The stupid said to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. This and the following details belong to the emblema, ornamentation of the parable. What Father Lapide means here is that the analogy is kind of mixed here. Analogy breaks down a little bit, and it's for the or ornamentation of the parable, because this doesn't exactly line up to the eschatology we know will happen on the last day. That doesn't make sense. Just listen to what Father Lapide says. He says, For with reference to what is signified by it, the reprobate in the day of judgment will not ask for the oil of good works from the elect. In other words, it's going to be too late. This is just kind of a poetic addition our Lord puts into the parable. For they, the elect, that is the saints, they will know that they will neither give nor be able to give it to them, to the reprobate, those who are on their way to hell. For then shall everyone be judged by the works which he has done in this life before death. This emblema, or ornamentation, is introduced to express with disapproval that the repentance of the reprobate will be too late when after death they behold the dreadful judgment of God hanging over them, and damnation imminent. And so they will say, for our lamps are gone out. In truth, they were extinguished because they had died in a state of mortal sin, and so will be consigned by Christ not to heaven but to hell. Yet they say, these are going out, because in this life their souls seem to men through their common profession of the true faith and through participation of the sacraments to burn with the appearance of true life. But then, that is, in death and judgment, when all those things are vanishing away, they will see that they are extinguished, and all appearance and hope of virtue and salvation will perish. Now, this is really important. I often see people on, like, Catholic Twitter, they're so excited anytime someone happens to be Catholic who's not living a good life, or someone is a celebrity or a soccer player or something, and everyone's just really happy they did the sign of the cross, even though they have like 10 girlfriends or something. And anybody who questions where modernism is leading people is somehow outside the club. But here we see Catholicism isn't just a card-carrying club. It's not just if you happen to be popular among Catholics. Notice we just learned here, there's many people who walk around with torches, they're card-carrying Catholics, but there is no charity, there's no flame to their torches. And so Father Lapide points out, even in the 17th century here, that there's Catholics who, through their common profession of the true faith and through participation of the sacraments, are still on their way to hell. Why? Because they're not living the traditional Catholic faith. So it's not enough to say, well, I attend a valid Mass. Do I think the Novus Ordo is valid? Yes. But that's not good enough if you're not living traditional Catholicism, if you're not living according to the magisterium. You might be receiving all valid sacraments, 
You might even be seen as a good Catholic among your friends, but unless you're actually living as the apostles taught the fathers, it's really of no use. Now, not that I'm saying it's super complex to be a great Catholic, because it's, it's really not, but you do have to keep the commandments. Remember in Matthew 19, the rich young man comes up to our Lord and says, what must I do to be saved? Our Lord's first answer is keep the commandments. And then we have verse 9. Again, we're in Matthew 25. Verse 9 says, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Again, a bit of a mixed analogy here. This is an ornamental detail, according to Father Lapide. He says this just lends elegance to the parable, signifying that on the day of judgment, the elect will not be moved by the misery of the reprobates, nor will they help them in any way, Indeed, they will not be able to help them, but rather will silently condemn them because they had neglected to use the time of this present life. And so the church fathers knew this was a bit of a mixed analogy with the dogma that they already knew, because St. Jerome says, In the day of judgment, no one's virtues will be able to give any assistance to other men's faults. In the day of judgment, no one's virtues will be able to give any assistance to other men's faults. Okay, verse 10. Now while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. St. Augustine says, For after judgment there is no place open for prayers or merits. Another thing modernist Catholics get wrong. A lot of modernist Catholics think they can repent right after they die and they see Jesus face to face. They can, okay, if it turns out that their bad lives were wrong, they'll just beg forgiveness once they see Jesus face to face. No, the confessional is the time for mercy. When you see Jesus face to face, that's the time for justice. That's the time for judgment. That's not me being mean or Jansenistic. That's what the Catholic faith has always taught. That once you are face to face with Jesus, either at your particular judgment or the general judgment, it's too late. Today's the day for mercy. Today's the day for forgiveness. Tomorrow's the day for justice and judgment. Then we have a beautiful account from two different saints. And we have Saint Adelinus, who is a bishop. And he relates of Saint Opportuna, who is an abbess. That's the female version of an abbot. So St. Opportuno is the abbess of a monastery of women. And it says, When St. Opportuno was very sick, there came to her St. Cecilia and Lucy, to whom she spoke fondly. Hail, Cecilia and Lucy, my sister, she cried. What does the Virgin Mary, the Queen of all, bid her handmaid to do? She is awaiting, they answered, your presence in heaven, that you may be united to her son. Therefore, you must be decked with a crown of glory and meet with burning lamp, the bridegroom and the bride. She was happy, therefore, when she beheld the Blessed Virgin coming to her and, as it were, embracing her. She gave up her spirit into her hands to be beatified with everlasting joy. What a beautiful story to show that nuns who give up marriage are truly going to be exemplified in this life in an eschatological fashion who the church is to be in the next life. In other words, Virginity is already uh, a symbol of the virgin church in heaven united with Christ. And their reward will be great, as we just heard in the life of St. Opportuna. Mary waiting to bring her into heaven. In fact, to the point that we heard the saint say to her, you must be decked with a crown of glory and meet with burning lamp the bridegroom and the bride. And then let's look at the last three verses. We have, Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So how could Christ, who is God, say he doesn't know the reprobate? Well, 
As Father Lapide points to 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows his own. And so it's not like Jesus, who is God, doesn't know something about the lives of the sinners who, who go to hell. He knows every, every aspect of their lives. They choose to reject him by sin. But when we hear this word to know, it actually means something similar to the biblical term to know in marriage. Now, of course, this is a spiritual one that we have in Matthew 25 here, not a physical one like we see in the Old Testament, like Abraham knew his wife, Sarah. But when we hear that the Lord knows his own, there is something of a spiritual intimacy. And that's exactly what's missing in the lives of the reprobate. That's why I can say he doesn't know them. And Father Lapide adds to that, Hence the voice of Christ the judge will be like thunder and lightning, blasting the wicked with an eternal malediction and thrusting them into hell. And so why can't we know this time when our Lord's going to come? Father Lapide says, This is the post-parable, showing the point, the purpose, and the application of the parable, namely that it is intended and directed toward inciting all the faithful to vigilance and the zeal for good works, by means of which they may prepare themselves for the day of death and judgment which is at once imminent and uncertain. Imminent and uncertain. St. Jerome interprets it to mean, since you do not know the day of judgment, be careful to provide the light of good works. And Pope St. Gregory the Great says, for he who has guaranteed pardon to the penitent has not promised tomorrow to the sinner. He who has guaranteed pardon to the penitent has not promised tomorrow to the sinner. St. Augustine says, God has promised you that in the day you are converted, he will forget your past sins but he's never promised you a tomorrow. Pope St. Gregory the Great and St. Augustine are saying the same thing. God's mercy is infinite. He can forgive any possible sin, but he's not obliged to guarantee you make it to confession tomorrow. He's given you the chance for confession today. We don't know if tomorrow is going to arrive. St. Augustine says, God in a salutary way has made the day of death uncertain. Let every man for his profit think upon his last day. It is of the mercy of God that man knows not when he shall die. The last day lies hidden, that all days may be watched. So notice, this isn't a trick of God just to catch us off guard. He's giving us more time so as to extend his mercy. But we can't misuse that mercy. This is why the parable today tells us, if you're not baptized, go get baptized and repent of your sins, giving your life to Jesus Christ. And if you are baptized... Get to confession with firm resolution of amendment because God can forgive any sin. He can light up your torch with his own charity, his own infinite charity, but you are not guaranteed that tomorrow will even come. So this is why our Lord is so vigilant that we be vigilant for our own souls. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio de omnipotentis, patris et spiritus sancti, descendit super vos, et maniat semper. Amen.